After this, John has designed another collection of stories that took place during four Jewish sacred days or feasts. And again, Jesus uses the images related to the feasts to make claims about himself. So Jesus first heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which starts a controversy with the Jewish leaders about working on the day of rest. And Jesus says it's his father who's working on the Sabbath, and so is he. And they catch his meaning, that he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to kill him. The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. After this is a block of stories set in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, which retold the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings as God guided them with the pillar of cloud and fire and provided them water in the desert. And Jesus gets up in the temple courts and he shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then later he says, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the illuminating presence of God and the life-saving gift of God to his people. And some people believe and follow him, but others are offended and still others try to kill him for these exalted claims. My friends, would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're reading out of uh, John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you may have heard some pastors or writers or theologians make comments about how this particular part of John chapter 8 is not present in all of the earliest manuscripts, and so it's not authentic and it's not authoritative and we don't need to pay attention to it. 
and in fact, in my Bible right here, it's, it's in italics. Just these 11 verses are in italics, and there's a little heading above it that says, the earliest manuscripts and many ancient witnesses do not have these verses. So your Bible may have something similar if you want to look it up. Now the thing is, there's no reason to doubt the authenticity of the story. There's none at all. There are two very valid possibilities that would explain why this is not in all of the earliest manuscripts. First, it's entirely possible that this is a story that was preserved orally among the early Christians for many years before it was written down. And one of the things I've explained many times in the past is that ancient people, when they preserved information orally, were really, really good at it. They had to be because they lived in a world where most people could not read or write, which meant most people relied on oral traditions to pass down information. They were incredibly gifted at making sure that the oral tradition that was passed down was accurate and consistent. So if this, if this is indeed a story that was just passed down orally for many years before it's written down, there's no reason to doubt the authenticity or the validity of it. But there's another possibility that only comes to light after you examine some aspects of their culture and some practices that they had. Even today, in fact, in some very traditional parts of the Middle East, there is an understanding that a family's honor is strongly tied to the sexual behavior of its women, which is why you may have heard of honor killings, which are still practiced in some parts of the world today. And so when these stories were first written down, they were copied by hand. And it was a private business arrangement that you made with the copyist. You would go to someone and say, I want a copy of this document, and they would do it for you. And so it's very likely that the head of a household would have taken a copy of the Gospel of John to a copyist and said, okay, I want a copy of this, but I want you to leave out the part about the adulterous woman because I don't want my daughter reading it and then committing adultery and then saying, well, Jesus forgave the woman. You have to forgive me. And at the same time, other Christian communities very bravely preserved that part of the story, even though it violated deeply, deeply held cultural attitudes, which is why you have some ancient manuscripts which have it and some that don't. Either of those is a very valid possibility. We'll never know on this side of the grave which one it is, but they both make perfect sense, and there is nothing in the text itself that suggests that this story is inauthentic. It happened. There is every reason to believe that this is really what Jesus did and said, that this is an event which was recorded by his witnesses. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for, for Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's a seven-day festival. Um, it, happens, it still happens in Jerusalem today, by the way, actually, if you ever want to take a trip over there uh, in September is usually when it goes on. Uh, because it's right at the end of the growing season. It's a combination of a harvest festival and a reminder of their life as a nomadic people in the wilderness. So you, you literally build a little booth in, on the roof of your house or, or in the street next to it, and your family moves into the booth for a week. Um, so it's a seven-day festival commanded in the Torah. And at the end of this festival, Jesus makes a series of statements that all amount to a public claim that he is God. And that enrages the Pharisees and the priests who then send people to arrest him at the end of chapter 7. And they fail. They can't arrest him. He's too popular. 
the crowd around him is too big, and it's pretty clear if they go in and try to arrest him, it'll start a riot. So the, the guards don't bring Jesus in. And so the Pharisees then concoct a plan to humiliate Jesus in public, which will strip him of his popularity and make him vulnerable to arrest. So they're going to ask him a question about the interpretation and application of the law that he can't answer without destroying himself. Now, it's entirely possible that this woman they bring before him is someone they arrested overnight after they had come up with this plan. And we're not told exactly how they managed to catch her in the act. Jesus could have avoided the temple that day. He, he had to have known that the temple guards had tried to arrest him the day before and failed. He probably knew that there was a good chance that the guards would be waiting for him at the gate in the morning before a crowd had gathered to arrest him, before his faithful supporters could be there to protect him. And he goes anyway. And there's no one waiting for him to arrest him, but he returns to the temple. A crowd gathers, and he sits down and begins to teach on the steps that lead into the temple. And that's when the Pharisees spring their trap. And they, they bring forward this woman they caught in the act of adultery, which, by the way, begs the question, how did a bunch of religious officials catch a woman in the act of adultery? Don't, I don't know if you're aware, my friends, but you can't commit adultery on your own. It takes two people to do adultery, and they've only brought one of them. <clears throat> they've only brought the woman. And the law in Leviticus is very clear that in cases of adultery, the man and the woman are to suffer the same punishment. There's no exception made for the man in that case. They've only brought the woman. They are, even as they are attempting to accuse Jesus of violating the law, they are violating the law themselves in the name of enforcing it. Now, the temple grounds cover about 35 acres, and on three sides, it's, it would have been surrounded by this long, covered walkway, and that walkway would connect to a Roman fortress on the north side of the temple grounds. And during the feast days, during the big festivals, Roman soldiers patrolled that walkway constantly because they were looking out for any signs of unrest or violence or protest or rebellion, which happened quite often on the feast days. So this entire scene is unfolding under Roman observation. Everyone who is in this story, everyone observing it happen would have been painfully aware of the armed military presence around them, of the soldiers who were ready to violently disperse the crowd at a moment's notice. And the Pharisees don't ask Jesus a hypothetical question of the law. They don't come and say, in theory, what would you do if? They, they bring the guilty party forward right in front of him, and they quote Moses, the great lawgiver, and they challenge Jesus to either agree or disagree with Moses himself. You can be assured that in that moment, the entire temple complex would have gone silent. The whole crowd would be on pins and needles waiting to hear what Jesus said next. The soldiers along the walkway would have had their hands on their swords ready to go. The Pharisees assume there are only two possible outcomes. Either Jesus will agree with them and say, yes, let's stone the woman, at which point the mob takes over. 
the mob grabs the stones and starts throwing them. And if that happens, the soldiers are going to intervene. The Jews are not allowed under Roman law to put anyone to death. So if Jesus takes this route, the mob picks up the stones and starts throwing, the soldiers are going to come in, they'll kill anyone who resists, and they'll arrest everyone else, including Jesus. He'll get arrested. The other option is that Jesus could say, well, we all know what the law requires, it's clear, but, but look, we've got all these soldiers all around us, they won't allow us to put her to death, and we have to accept that we live under Roman rule, even while we hope for the day when God will overthrow the pagan empire. At which point, they can declare him a coward, and they can, they can challenge his devotion to God and to the Torah, and they can question his devotion to the Jewish cause. So essentially, they think his options are carry out the law of Moses and be arrested by the Romans, or set aside the law of Moses and be discredited in the public eye. His followers will just evaporate away, and the Pharisees can then arrest him themselves, and either way, the Pharisees win. They're so confident of victory that they set up this entire confrontation in public on their own turf. Now, a feast day, including all seven days of this festival, is considered a Sabbath. All the rules of Sabbath apply. And on a Sabbath, you are forbidden from writing. And because the rabbis like to define everything in great detail, they define writing as anything which leaves a permanent mark. And there is a specific exception made for writing with your finger in the dirt because it's not permanent. So just this simple act of Jesus bending down and writing in the dirt with his finger is a a pretty strong signal to the Pharisees. He's telling them, look, I'm not just some country bumpkin you can outwit. I know the law. I know your interpretation of the law and you've just made a big mistake. Now, people have debated for centuries what it is that Jesus wrote in the dirt. But I think the following words, the things he says next, actually give us all we need in order to figure out what he wrote. It's really clear from everything that Jesus says next that he opted for a strict interpretation of the law. He decreed the death penalty. And he never says it out loud, so he must have written it in the dirt. The penalty is death. And then he announces the method of execution. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now this matters. There is a mob of people present, and mobs will do anything. They will kill, they will burn, they will destroy, they will loot without remorse, because in a mob, you lose yourself. Individuals escape accountability in a mob. If everyone in the crowd stones this woman, then no individual will bear responsibility for her death. Jesus is putting a name and a face on everyone in the crowd. He's asking each individual to take responsibility for the act. When the Roman soldiers would come to break up the crowd, the first thing they'll ask is, who started this? Who threw the first stone? They won't ask who ordered it until later. So Jesus is saying to his opponents, look, I get it. You want me to go to jail for the law of Moses. You want me to, you're testing me. You're testing my devotion to this. And my answer is, yeah, I'll go to jail for it. 
Now, which one of you is going to volunteer to go with me? These people are living in a shame-pride culture. When their children misbehave, they don't tell them that's wrong. They say, shame on you. Shame and pride are enormously important. And anyone who steps out of the crowd claiming to be sinless is going to immediately bring shame on himself and his family. Because they all know the scriptures, and the Old Testament is just as clear as the New Testament that there is no one who is without sin. Jesus has reversed the trap. Now the Pharisees are the ones who are under pressure. People would have naturally turned to the eldest person present. That's the person who's supposed to be the wisest, the one who's most well-versed in the law. And from the oldest to the youngest, Jesus' opponents withdraw in humiliation. And he bends down to write again, and this time we have no real clue as to what he might be writing. But we know his eyes were on the ground, not watching the humiliation of his opponents. He's not taking satisfaction in this. He just wanted to save the woman. And Jesus now has humiliated powerful people on their turf. That spells danger. Just a few minutes before, this poor, terrified woman was expecting a brutal, painful death. And in the blink of an eye, Jesus has taken the wrath that would have been directed at her, and he has drawn it all onto himself. He doesn't even know her name. And at great personal cost, he has saved her life by putting his own in danger. She knows, as well as he does, that the Pharisees will be back. That Jesus is going to get hurt because of her. She is receiving a costly demonstration of love that saves her life. Jesus is showing the life-changing power of costly love. And as he does it, we, we gain insight into his own understanding of the significance of his suffering and death. And we learn a core part about what atonement is about. We also get a really clear picture, by the way, of how we as Christians are to understand the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus does not condemn her, but he also does not overlook her self-destructive lifestyle. Right? Go and leave your sinless life. Go and leave your life of sin. Don't get those confused. It's clear. It's clear that Jesus accepts and affirms the morals of the Old Testament, including the sexual morals. He upholds them, not just here, but elsewhere throughout the Gospels. He repeatedly affirms them, and so do the other New Testament authors. The moral code of the Old Testament in every aspect of life, not just in areas of sex and marriage, but in every aspect of life, is never redefined in the New Testament. It is repeatedly affirmed and taught as true and good. What Jesus does do is he removes the, uh, the ritual purity laws. He removes some other things, but the, the moral code is affirmed time and time again. But what he does is he removes the penalty. He removes the penalty because on the cross, Jesus takes the penalty onto himself. So in effect, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the woman, you're both wrong. 
Both of you have sinned, and you both need to change your ways. He's not opposed to the laws of the Old Testament. He clearly knows the law very well, and he recognizes that the woman is destroying herself by her unfaithfulness, and he upholds the ethics of the law. He forgives the woman and challenges her to change her ways. And this is the work of the cross. This is not a story, by the way, about how Jesus handles adultery. This poor woman is just a prop. She's bait. She's being treated as an object by people who want to entrap and humiliate Jesus. The real showdown is between Jesus and the Pharisees, and the real story is about a bunch of religious leaders who have a twisted view of who God is, who have failed to see God in the flesh right in front of them, who have rebelled against the word of God, and who are now using a person who is guilty of sexual sin as a tool to confront Jesus, to humiliate him, to hopefully defeat him. And the brilliance of his response is he doesn't let anybody off the hook. He confronts the religious leaders by upholding the law. He says, in effect, yep, she's guilty, the law is clear, she deserves death. Now, which one of you is going to carry out the sentence? Which one of you is going to actually put your life and your freedom on the line? And he doesn't condemn the woman, but he does not let her off easy either. He's clear that she is, in fact, guilty that the moral code of the Old Testament still applies. And it would have been clear to her in that moment, knowing what the Pharisees would try next, that Jesus was not absolving her of her sin. He was taking the punishment for her sin in her place. Imagine what must have gone through that woman's mind when Jesus was crucified. She'd have known immediately that he was suffering her punishment. She was condemned to death for her sin, but she lived and Jesus died. Jesus upheld the law, but said, now by the grace of God, I will suffer the penalty for your sins in your place. Go and sin no more. And this matters. Jesus does not at any time remove the moral code of the Old Testament. He ends the dietary laws. He ends the ritual and purity and sacrificial laws, not because they weren't important or because they were a problem, but because their entire purpose was fulfilled in him. But the moral code is still in effect. It still provides our guidelines on how to live, how to behave, how to treat others. But the key difference is that Jesus has taken all the penalties for our sin upon himself. And what happens next is up to us. How will we respond to Jesus' act of costly, self-giving love? The Pharisees respond by doubling down on their rage and on their hatred. When he's publicly confronted them with their sin in this story, and to be clear, they were absolutely sinning. Their treatment of this woman is not at all in line with how they're supposed to treat a person. They're not loving their neighbor. And of course, the list goes on of the ways in which they sin against. But he confronts them publicly with their sin, with their failure to uphold the law properly. And they leave, they're humiliated, but they don't repent. And all too often, this is exactly how we respond when we are confronted with our own sins. Instead of repenting and running to Jesus, we double down. We push the gospel away or we simply ignore the parts of it that we don't like and we find ways to justify our sin while ignoring the full message of the gospel and we shout down anyone who objects. 
we're not actually told in the story how this woman responds to Jesus' act of saving grace. But it's really hard to imagine that she didn't at least make an effort to change her ways. And it's impossible to think that when Jesus was crucified, that the full magnitude of what he had done for her wasn't immediately clear. This is not cheap grace. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus doesn't pay the penalty for our sin just so we can keep on doing what we're doing. He does it precisely so that we can turn ourselves around. He does it so that we can see what real love looks like, so that we'll understand the depth of God's love for us and the incredible, unfathomable cost of our sins. There could have been no doubt in this woman's mind that Jesus was nailed to the cross because of her. He had pronounced her sentence and then taken it upon himself. This is the purpose of Lent, this whole season that we use to prepare ourselves for Easter, to remind ourselves that the verdict has already been declared. The penalty is death. And that Jesus, acting in love, refuses to condemn us. And so he suffered and died in our place. The difficulty for us is that it's almost hypothetical in nature. It's hard to wrap your mind around this. And so I would invite you to put yourself in this woman's shoes. To imagine what it was like for her to know that Jesus himself had pronounced the judgment. that the penalty was death, but that he refused to condemn her. And then to see, not all that much later, that he was dead upon the cross. To know, to know that he had pronounced that you deserve death. And then to know that you had lived and he had died. And after you have reflected on that, remember what his last words to this woman were. Go now and leave your sinful life behind. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.